Almighty God, Father and Maker of all things, you are our only source for all joy, peace, grace, good, beauty, and truth. You alone, Lord Jesus, can satisfy our hearts and our souls. Give us, give us security for a fearful and frantic heart that so many of us have. You alone can calm and give peace. Allow for rest in the chaos that's around us in this world and the turmoil that is within us in our own hearts. You are good and you preserve and you sustain. You keep your people. A testimony of this very thing is that we are sitting here this morning. May we not forget that. Father, we pray that as your word goes forward this morning, as Christ is set before our eyes, oh, that you would cause faith to spring up, maybe in hearts who have never trusted in you before. Father, may faith be stirred and strengthened and even matured in those saints who are here this morning that are weak and weary. Father, cause your spirit to work through the preaching of your word today. That Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, may captivate our hearts again. And that we may desire and cling to this living hope that's promised in your word. We need this living hope for the days that are ahead of us. We ask these things in the name and the strong name of our sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we began this book of 1 Peter last Lord's Day. Somebody texted me this week and said, about how many sermons are you looking at? And uh, I looked through and said, this was earlier in the week, I said 20. Now, having preached the second sermon, I'm leaning toward 80. So we're going to squeeze everything we can out of this. Let, let's, let's see how we go here. The plan is, is to be here in 1 Peter for a while. I know for many of you, that is a good thing. We need this message, God's people. This morning, we need to hear the message that's before us here in 1 Peter. So we're going to be looking together just at the first few verses that we looked at this morning, which is verses 3 through 5. That's where we're going to be gathering our thoughts and looking together. So put your finger there. We'll be spending a lot of time uh, stirring and reflecting and meditating on verses 3 through 5 together. If you remember last week, we were talking about those who received this letter first. Peter, the apostle, was the one who delivered it. But those who received this letter, who heard it first, were called exiles. You see that there in verse 1. Strangers, foreigners, some translations say. They were aliens in this world. They were sojourners. They were passing through. And this was not due to any, what we may understand, maybe strangers or aliens today, exiles today, uh, that may have some uh, difficult political circumstances that causes them to be that way. No, these strangers or exiles, according to Peter in our book here, they were strangers and exiles, they were sojourners because of their faith. Not because of difficult political circumstances or, or even poor financial choices, but instead because they were walking faithfully with their Lord. Caused them to be cast out, to be seen not as citizens. And they began to really feel this themselves. They began to understand that they are not familiar with this world with the ambitions and the aims of this world. Now that Christ has come into their heart, they have placed their faith in Him. They're no longer citizens of this world, but they're living for another kingdom because of their faith. They, like all who follow Christ, are to consider themselves not citizens, but strangers and exiles in this world that has an ambitions and aims that are not now our own. We are, if you will, as Peter even mentioned, we are wanderers like these saints of First Peter during the time of First Peter. We're wanderers in this world. These people have lost, in this, in this case, in First Peter, these people have lost the, the earthly luxuries that they had. And they were even beginning to feel a bit like they were cast out or even abandoned in this world. Even though Peter here was calling them not only exiles but also elect. Those who have been brought near by affection the Lord was caring for them, choosing them, electing them. Now, if this was the hardships and the struggles that these people were going through, how would, if you were there, how would you respond to them? 
How would you console them? How would you bring comfort into their life? Would you go to them and say, you know what? It's hard, but everything will be okay eventually. We're not going to be exiled forever. We'll be able to go back and and be able to have our homes again. We'll be able to settle in and find comfort later, but not now. Peter doesn't do that. Peter doesn't, doesn't go that route. But instead, what we find here and what we see this morning is that Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, sought to strengthen these exiles, these outcasts from the world. He sought to strengthen them and encourage them by insisting that they, notice in verse 3, praise their God. That they turn their eyes away from the circumstances and situations and to instead bless their God and King. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's calling them to. Now, this first phrase, if you will, verse 3, this first phrase is really a banner that is, that is hanging over verses 3 through 12. In other words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is really the heading. And then there's really three different sections that are under this heading. As we work through over the next several weeks, several sermons, we're going to look at verses 3 through 12 under this heading of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see it here in our passage. Verses 3 through 5 we'll be looking at today. This will be praise for future hope. That'll be the sermon that we're going to be looking at today, the message that will be before us this morning. Next, the next sermon will be verses 6 through 9, praise for present trials, verses 6 through 9. This is not the points for the sermon this morning. This is the points that will be hit, the, the sermons that we'll be looking at over the next several weeks. So the first one is praise for future hope, verses 3 through 5. The second is praise for present trials, verses 6 through 9. And then thirdly and lastly, the last sermon here will be praise for past revelation. And this is verses 10 through 12. And over this future hope, these present trials, this past revelation, is this banner hanging over all of it saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for for our future hope, for our present trials, for our past revelation that the Lord's bringing forward to us now. Each of these are very rich and we're going to spend time in each one of these dedicating a sermon to each one. But before we move on, before we get into this future hope, this praising God for and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, for this future hope that we have, I want us to not assume for a moment that you and I understand what it means when it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard that word before. Many of us have grown up in church Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we nod our heads. Yes, that is true. That's, what, that's, that's, that's good. That's what we're to do. What does it mean? Have you ever thought much about what it means to ascribe blessedness to God? Sometimes we're in a church so long, we just pass over terms. And we all assume and nod our heads as if we know what they mean. And we don't. What does it mean when we ascribe blessedness to our God? Well, blessedness... According to one of the authors I read, Herman Bovink, he describes it in three different ways. So this blessedness, give me some time here, we're getting into it. This blessedness first expresses that God is absolute perfection. To to bless the name of God is to affirm that he is a God of absolute perfection. God is absolutely perfect. The sum total of all his virtues Supreme being, supreme wisdom, supreme good, supreme truth, supreme love. Because God is absolute life and the source and fountainhead of all of life, He is also the one who is absolutely blessed and forever so. Blessedness, often in Scripture, is connected to life. Think about it. If we had life and no blessing then we would really have a very meager and pitiful life, wouldn't we? So God is the one who is the absolute perfect one. He is radiant in all of his perfections, all of his virtues. And to ascribe blessedness to God is to ascribe all of his perfections to him by this one term. That's the first thing it means by ascribing blessedness to our God. The second reason we do this 
ascribe blessedness to our God. This is what it means. It means that God knows and delights in all of these perfections. He knows them perfectly and he delights in them absolutely. That's what it means when we ascribe blessedness to our God. He's the one who knows and delights in all of his own perfections. This is what it means to be blessed. Another way of saying this is that God knows himself absolutely and and loves himself absolutely. Because he is worthy of full and absolute devotion. So the first is that to ascribe blessedness to God means that he's absolutely perfect in all of his perfections and all of his attributes and virtues. Second is that he knows and delights in those things. And then finally, thirdly, This blessedness, when we attribute blessedness to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, when we ascribe blessedness to Him, it means that He is not in process of growing into these things. He's not groping after these things. But instead, our God is absolutely perfectly blessed, and He delights in this blessing, and He rests in His self-sufficiency, in His own own blessedness. In other words, He's not up scourging around trying to keep himself absolutely perfect in all of his virtues. No, he is by his very essence and being perfect, glorious, beautiful, true, good, right. He's not trying to keep those things going. His life is not in process of becoming, nor an evolution, not a process. He's not desiring or striving to be something that he's not. He's never lacking in any way. His Rest, listen to this, his rest is uninterrupted and his peace is eternal. Now, wow, this is the beginning of the sermon. Usually Shane starts with something that's a lot more tangible and like earthly and something I've gone through this past week. Why in the world is Shane starting here? Because Peter starts here and he's speaking to this congregation, this group that has been exiled. They're, they're dispersed. They're scattered all over the place. Their lives are a wreck. They're losing everything they've ever known. And Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's where they are to be looking. Because our lives are being pressed, our faith is being confronted. We too sometimes feel like strangers. And it sometimes feels like our faith is going to be devoured as we groan under the hardships and sorrows of walking in this world, these dark paths of faith, sometimes it requires an incredible amount of strength and fortitude. And then you hear somebody come to you and say, well, just bless God. It may seem trite and empty. It may even seem cruel. But that's not what Peter's doing here. Peter is calling these saints to bless the everlasting, almighty, always glorious, Radiant, perfectly and supremely wise, always good, always loving, constantly bringing about peace for his people. He's calling these people to bless that God, to bring glory and honor to him. He's calling them to look away from the circumstances and to turn their eyes not to just something that's better, but something that's infinitely more good and beautiful and glorious than anything they can experience here on earth. He's saying, yes, the tragedies and the difficulties and the sorrows and the loss in your life are hard. But brothers and sisters, turn your heart to bless the name of your God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be deserved to all praise and glory and honor. Bless His holy name. Now this has happened as far back as one of the oldest characters in our Bible. Who's one of the oldest characters in our Bible? Well, it's, it's Job. Some say Job was even older than Abraham. And in Job chapter 1, it says, Job chapter 1, remember that's right after he loses everything. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Do you hear the tragedy? The same kind of life. Job has just talked about the same kind of thing that's happened to these people in 1 Peter. They've lost everything. They're exiled. They're scattered and wandering around with nothing to have that's in this world. Naked they came into the world. Naked they shall leave. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. But what does Job say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
That is a right and appropriate response to the hardships and difficulties and sorrows of our life. For us to turn, as Peter is calling us and these people here today, to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many of us, however, and so many in the world, refuse to turn our gaze from the passing empty trinkets of this world to be captivated by the eternal glory and blessedness of God Almighty in all of his beauty and glory and good and blessedness. Why? And that, and doesn't that confuse you? I mean, you're, you may be, I hope you're asking your own heart that right now. Why in the world do I grovel about these, these trinkets and these things in the world when I can turn my heart to be captivated by this blessed God? It is because we need a bit more information. You know, if we went to the right websites and cruised around there a little bit and got a little bit more information, if we knew a little more, then maybe our hearts would not be so stubborn and hard against blessing the Lord God. Is it because our lives need to be adjusted here and there? We, we, need, we need some, some, some adjustments. You know, not, not a complete makeover, but maybe, maybe some edges need to be cut off and some, some honing needs to be done. I need to become more effective and efficient. Maybe it's because the circumstances that my life has found me in. You know, many of us go along and we say, why, why is my life so mundane? Why is everything just so, so, why is my life in such a place where it's just everything is like right in front of me and right now and I just have to deal with what's there, right, right here. There's no, there's no glory outside of what I'm looking at day in and day out. Maybe it's the people around me. Maybe it's the way I grew up. Are these the reasons why your heart and mine finds ourselves in that dull, indifferent, sometimes sadly even hostile place where we just cannot bring ourselves to bless the name of God in heaven? And that's, that's not the reason. None of those are the reasons. We'd like to blame it on those things. The only way the only way anyone will declare the rest that we're to have and that we're to want and that we're to desire in this blessedness of God, our maker, and to be able to revel in his blessedness, this blessedness of the God and father of our, do you notice that there in our passage? Our Lord, Jesus Christ. Turning our eyes away from the passing empty things of the earth and find our great joy and satisfaction in God alone. This is the only way that will happen. Look with me at verse 3. It's according to His great mercy. He has to do something. He can't just adjust our life or maneuver a few things in it or move some things around and get some more information into us. No, what's required for us to bless Bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that we receive great mercy in such a way that we're caused to be born again. Do you see that there? We need to be born again. This is great, great mercy that God shows us. This is our only hope. If God shows us this amazing, astonishing mercy, this is our only hope. Mercy, brothers and sisters, mercy by definition let me, let me be very precise here. We use the word mercy. Sometimes we don't understand exactly what it means. Mercy is God's goodness being shown or expressed the, toward those who are in misery. Did you know that? Everywhere in Scripture we find the word mercy being used. It's, it's God's goodness being shown or expressed toward those who are miserable. Who are miserable. They're the only ones that will cry out for mercy are the ones who are acknowledging their misery in this world. And saying, nobody just, we've said this before, I've said it so many times, nobody just asks for misery. Hey God, in your spare time, can you give me some mercy? Because I, I need some whenever you get time. No, no. If we need mercy, we're begging and pleading and crying out to our God. Oh, would you please give mercy? Why? Because it is only the miserable who call out for mercy. And brothers and sisters, according to this passage, we need great mercy. Great mercy is toward all of those 
Great mercy is shown to all of those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is the is the conduit by which we receive mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace from our God, so that we can not only say God the Father, but also say our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be your name. Calling on Him is not just an adjustment that we're asking for in certain aspects of our life. Calling on Christ, we're not just simply asking God to manage all the bad stuff in our life so that we can get on with the things we want to do. Jesus Christ calls us to come to Him by faith and to be born again, to be new creatures, to abandon our ambitions, our aims, our desires, the way we did everything, and to now devote ourselves to this blessed God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many here this morning think, and many of us may may be following Christ so that He can help you with the plans you already have for your life, but you really wish Christ would kind of make these things that you can't quite get your hands on. Maybe he can make those better, and then I can be the best me I can be. That is not salvation. That is not what God has promised. Jesus will never be added to your life. God has called us this morning to turn in repentance away from our sin in our pursuit of this world and the things that are in it, and to receive by faith the blessed God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith means we must do more than just add Him to our already busy lives. No, we must be born again. And our text says that these elect exiles had been shown this great mercy because it says He has caused you. Do you see that there? He has caused you to be born again. He's saying... This is something that's happened to you as elect exiles. So if you are in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, then you are those who have been born again. So this morning we will reflect together for the rest of our time on the future benefits of being born again. Peter is seeking to strengthen and encourage these weary exiles, these saints. He's telling them, of Christ's work. He has caused us to be born again. And then he sets before them, and here's the three points for the sermon. We finally arrived. Three points for the sermon is he set before them three promises to expect as those who are born again as they live in this life as exiles. Born again, they're to be born again, point number one, to a living hope. Born again to a living hope, verse three. Born again, number two, to a sure inheritance. This is verse four. And then born again, point number three, to a prepared salvation. A prepared salvation. Point number one, a living hope, verse three. Point number two, a sure inheritance, verse four. And then born again to a prepared salvation, verse five. Living hope, sure inheritance, prepared salvation. Let's look together at point number one, a living hope. Verse three, the first promise to expect as a born-again believer, one who is in exile in this world, is this living hope that he offers to all of those. He says, this is what we are to expect. This is the promise that we're to expect. Verse three, according to the great mercy, he has called us to be born again, listen, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, When we use the word hope in our English vernacular, a lot of times we use the word um, in a way that's kind of wishful or unsure, kind of like a preference or a want. Uh, We we want, we we wish, or we let's say we would hope that our team wins, or we would hope that we would have a good meal um, after church today. It's a want or preference. However, this biblical term for hope has none of that. In fact, this word for hope has no uncertainty or wishful thinking, but instead the word for hope in the scriptures is always a confident hope, a sure hope, a definite reality that has not yet come true. And so it's a hope, it's something that is anticipated, it's something that's coming. It is sure and definite. It is not wishful thinking. It is a confidence that God will do what he says he's going to do. One of the best examples for hope that I've seen in the scriptures is in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
Think about it this way. You've heard of the, the, the triad, right? Faith, hope, and love, right? You've heard of that triad before in the scriptures. Um, one, of the, one of the clearest, succinct definitions of faith is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, right? Faith is the, remember? That, that, that's just, and then one of the clearest, more dis, most distinct definitions of love in our Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Chapter 13, right? Here in Hebrews chapter 4 is one of the clearest definitions, succinct definitions of this, this, this term hope. Let me read it for you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should, speaking of Abraham, should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And here's the definition of hope. You can write hope, and then beside it, this is what it is. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what hope is. Hope is being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's Romans chapter 4 verse 21. This is the hope we're talking about here. This living hope. Notice it doesn't just say hope, but it says a living hope here in our passage. A living hope. The point here is that this hope that the people are to have, the one that they have as those who are born again, is not a dead, lifeless, meaningless hope. Something that they have, have on their shelf and they, and they keep it there and then when they need some hope, they go over and they, they reference it or they bring it down. No, this hope isn't something that just sits on the shelf. This is a hope that is vital. This is a hope that is in every aspect of our lives. It's one that forms and shapes everything that's about them. That's why it's called a living hope. Here, this term living hope speaks of its vibrancy. This hope that is vital for every aspect of our life, informing every part of our lives. It calls the saints of that day to continue, even when everything seemed to be bad and difficult. It was a hope that informed them. It gave them re resolve and confidence when all the world was being snatched from them. This is the living hope. This isn't some dead, barren, lifeless hope. This is a living hope. It calls them to live their lives in this way. With their eye set to the promises of heaven. And it caused them to look away from, this living hope caused them to look away from the current immediate circumstances where everything seems to be falling through their fingers. Nothing could stay the same. And it caused them to not despair, but to look with their God, look to their God with resolve. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Is your hope a living hope? Many of you who have placed your faith in Christ and you say, I have been born again. I have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us are here this morning and you would confirm that you have hope. My question is, is, is your hope a living hope? A living hope. One that is causing you to look away from and not live in the constant pressures of the world and the circumstances around you. And yet your eye is constantly turning to heaven Constantly, constantly lingering there about the day when all of these hardships and struggles and difficulties, even your sin will fall away and your life will be before your Savior and His blessedness will be known by your glorified body. What caused those saints, those elect exiles that were going through such hardship, what caused them to live with this future promise as their aim. Instead of allowing the innumerable circumstances of their life press on them so much that they went into despair, what caused them to have this living hope? That's a good question because whatever caused them to, to tap into this living hope and to live this way during this hardship is what you and I need as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where we need to turn our eyes and our hearts and our affections and our attention, so that we too can have this hope, but not just hope, but a living hope. 
Look where they turned it to. A living hope through or by means of, do you see that there? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead breaks upon us by faith, we live out of a foundation that cannot be shaken. This objective truth of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, if we place roots there, our hearts will be freed from the hopelessness that is everywhere in this life. You and I have felt it. You and I have done this before. Maybe even this week, maybe even this morning, you have placed your heart in something that's in this world and you've placed your hope in it and it's crumbled and fallen away and you've felt the loss and hopelessness of placing your hope there. You will never feel that when your heart is rooted in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be released from the shackles and the bondage of our fears of losing this world. You know what it's like? Laying there in bed, in the dark, wondering if you'll have enough resources for what's coming at you, or if you lose your job, or if you, you've been through the what if game. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if I get that? What if I get this? And now all of a sudden, people in the church are starting to get sick and get cancer. Oh no, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And, and you got to get up and walk around the house because you can't lay in bed anymore because it's driving you mad. You don't have a living hope. A hope that's turning you away from this world and the things in it. That's bondage, brothers and sisters. That's bondage, friends. The anxiety that binds all of us will control us and foster all kinds of things in our lives. We'll begin living differently in this bondage if we're not released and freed. And the only way we can be freed is by having this living hope that's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When our hearts are rooted there into this truth, in Him as our first fruits of the promised resurrection, Hope springs from the dry, barren ground of our hearts. And we're able not to live like the world does for the things of this world, seeking joy and hope in them, but instead in what Christ has done for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people to be pitied. But in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 18, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So this morning, if your heart is in despair and your journey of faith has become so difficult, you are losing grasp of the hope and especially this living, vibrant hope that's being commended here that strengthens and motivates one's faith. My encouragement to you this morning is to turn to Christ and specifically to his resurrection from the dead. It's not just simply an intellectual knowledge. It's not simply simply something you, okay, I've got that data point, check it off. No, this is, this is something that we learn and we understand and we know. But remember what blessedness was? It's not just knowing that God exists. The demons know that God exists. And what do they do? They're not blessed. They shudder. The blessedness that we're after is that when we meditate on the resurrection of Christ, we delight in it. Because we delight in what we will receive when we are raised from the dead and placed before our Savior. That's the work that the Spirit does. And that's the work that will happen as we open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would encourage you to do that this week. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 and spend time reading through that chapter on the resurrection of Christ and rereading it and rereading it and rereading it. Linger there. Ask the Lord that by His Spirit that He will cause you to root your heart and your hope in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, you think, that's insane. I will never do that. I could never... I can never root and completely cling to something like the resurrection of Christ. There's no way I can do that. Don't be so sure. You and I have, have grasped onto much more foolish things to place our hope in. Our job, our family, our spouse, 
our children, our hobbies, our sports, politics, our health. All of us knows what it's like to place our hope in those foolish things. And I'm saying there's only one place that can shoulder the weight of our hope. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord if he would show you great mercy. Great mercy. And cause your fingers to let go of those foolish hopes. And to cling to the resurrection of Christ. That your hope may be a living, vibrant hope in the name of Jesus Christ. So the first thing of being born again is to a living hope. Number two, the second point. Number two, we're born again to a sure inheritance. A sure inheritance. Point number two, verse four. The second promise to expect as a born again exile is this sure inheritance that's described for us here in verses four and five. Going into verse five. To an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading, Kept in heaven for you. Do you see that? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 4. As those who have been born again into the very family of Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, now we are able to call him our Father. And here Peter is setting before our eyes the reality of what awaits all who are in Christ. That our hearts may be stirred and strengthened, especially as we see so much loss. And the burden of our hearts sees that this world and the things in it are dying and falling away. How can we be strengthened? How can our hearts be built up? It's not by continuing to look at something else. Well, that family member died that I loved and I set my heart on. So I'm going to go to another person. Maybe I need to get another updated this or an updated that. Or maybe when, maybe when all the kids leave the house, my life will be better. Or maybe when I have kids, life will be better. We've all gone through those scenarios. We all have this idea that if down the road this happens, then my life will be better. We're placing our hope in something that is shaky, that may or may not happen. We're placing our hope in things that are imperishable or that are perishable, defiled and fading away. So here, Peter is simply doing this. He's saying, listen, instead of causing your eyes to place your hope in all these other things, let me turn your eyes to a treasure that you will have in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that will not fall away from you, that will never be taken from you. You see, he's saying there is not just some place that's slightly better, but he's saying evaluate your life and the passing treasures of this life. And now look with me, if you will, at the inheritance that's promised to all of those who are in Christ, who are born again. Christ has not only caused us to be born again to a living hope, but he's also said he will give us all an inheritance. However, just as the Old Testament saints of old We are so slow to enter into that inheritance. We are so apprehensive to receive what Christ has promised for us. He has said, these are the things that are for you in Christ Jesus. And yet, we stand back. We're not quite sure if we want them or not. We're not sure if these are the best things for us. Couldn't some other things, can't we have these things and the things of the world? We're so apprehensive. Because we don't want to lose one thing for another. We don't want to give up something that is tangible and right in front of us for something that is in the future and awaiting us. It is, it is called unbelief. It is called doubt. When we turn from the blessings that God has for us that are so lavish and incredible, and we say, but maybe the things here on earth, maybe they can satisfy my soul. If you continue down that path, you'll continue to get the results you've always gotten. There isn't a one here this morning that can't testify to the fact that there's nothing in this world that will satisfy your soul. There's nothing that's sufficient. There's no pleasure that will cause you to rest. Joshua in his day, 
As Scout read for us in Joshua chapter 18 this morning, Joshua in his day, it says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Now, who subdued the land before them? God did. God says, here's the land. All you have to do is enter into it. Go into the land. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, Listen, how long will you put off going into, going into take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? I ask you this, this morning, how long will you continue to pursue and place your hope in things of this world when you have such an inheritance before your eyes? When are you going to begin doubting the commercials? And, the, and even your own heart that says, there's something here in this world that I desperately need that will make me ultimately happy. When will you reject those and turn to trust God's word? How long will you continue to linger and allow your heart to cling to the unsatisfying baubles and trinkets of this world that attempts to sell your soul for something that will pass away? Some of us are reading through the Old Testament. We have a, a, a Bible reading plan, and we're reading through the Old Testament. And of course, this, it's only, what, two or three weeks in? All of us are still going well. I mean, we might have missed a couple of days, but we haven't gotten to that dreaded Leviticus yet, right? Where all of us are going to drop off, and we're going to just re-up for the next year. But we're, we're still in Genesis, and we're still going strong. Last week, we read Genesis 19. Familiar story. Do you remember God rescuing Lot? from that vile place called Sodom. Lot had been there for a while. Even his daughters had married men from the city. And the angels were trying to deliver them, Lot and his family, before the city gets destroyed. Genesis 19.15 says this, As morning dawned, this is the last day that Sodom was going to be around, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. Verse 16. Genesis 19, verse 16 says this. But he lingered. Why? Why do we want to linger in Sodom? Knowing that there isn't anything here for us. When there's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, beautiful and glorious, unfading, awaiting for us. Why would we like Lot linger? My prayer this morning is that through the preaching of God's Word, His Spirit will do what these angels did. The rest of verse 16 in Genesis chapter 19, verse 16 says this. After it says, but he lingered, it says this. So the men, these are the angels, seized him. And his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. That's what it says. The Lord was being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Oh, that God would do this in your heart this morning by his spirit. Why would we linger? It would be one thing if what the Lord promises us is equal to what the world can offer. Or maybe just a little bit better than what the world can offer. But brothers and sisters, notice what our passage says. This inheritance is described for us. It's promised to us by Almighty God, and it's described to us. It says this, first, our promised inheritance is imperishable. Imperishable. The world will call us to exchange the imperishable glory of God for what? For images resembling the Creator, like men and birds and animals and all sorts of things that will perish and slip through our fingers like sand. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Those things will perish. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This promised inheritance is imperishable. It goes on, this promised inheritance is described further as undefiled. Undefiled. All of us know what it's like. Our flesh and our eyes 
Have you come to understand that as long as we live in this sad old earth, in this world that we live in, that our flesh and eyes will constantly be drawing us away from that which is holy to that which is defiled? You know that's true. Our flesh and our eyes, they just constantly are drawing us away to foolishness, to unholy and defiled things. Things that never will and never have satisfied. Things that are ungodly and indecent. Oh, that our Lord will grant us His Spirit so that our hearts will long for His inheritance, that which is good and beautiful and true, that which is prepared for us in heaven before the very radiant glory of our Savior. We are wanting those things. We're wanting Him. We're wanting His kingdom. Our souls long not for that which is defiled, but an inheritance that's waiting for us that's undefiled. Oh, the day when our prayers will be whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, our hearts will and our minds will and our souls will think about these things. Oh, what a day that'll be. Finally, this promised inheritance is described as unfading. Unfading. The world and all that's in it is going to be rolled up one day, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. Why would we love the world and pursue desires of this world when we are promised an inheritance that is unfading and that will never pass away? 1 John chapter 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love them. If anyone loves the world, listen to this, the love of the Father is not in him. That's an indictment. Don't love the world. Because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Listen, the world is passing away along with its desires. But, here's the promise, whoever does the will of God abides forever, unfading. Inheritance, unfading. Remember these first hearers that were listening to this letter being read to them from Peter, the apostle. They had lost everything. They were scattered. They were sent out from their homes. Whatever they had, they were probably carrying with them. All of the world's comforts and pleasures were snatched away from them. They longed for the day when they had their own homes and their own stuff and their own things. And yet now, because of their faith, they were no longer able to live comfortable lives, but exiles in the world. Thinking about those goods and those comforts that they once had, but no longer have, because they are now in Christ, born again. So Peter set before them and before us this morning this wonderful promise that many of us need to take to heart because we're living in a world that's going to require us, sadly, I believe, many of you know for sure, many of us live in a world that's going to cause us to be fired because of our faith. This inheritance isn't something that anyone or anything in this world can snatch away from us. Why? Because it is kept in heaven for you. Our hearts know the sorrow and sadness of loss here on this earth. And many of us know that no matter how hard we may attempt to sustain and maintain our lives, there are some control freaks in here. I know, I know who you are, because I'm one. You try to order and orchestrate your lives. You're convinced that if you can just keep your kids in order, that everything will be great. That's laughable. You can't control your own life. You can't control your own heart. You can't control the things around you. Things are in chaos. It's just a facade when we think we control things. But God is in control. And he's making us holy. He's drawing us to himself. He's giving us the resources we need to count on him and to trust him. All these things that are around us in our lives will perish. They will be corrupted by those who are ungodly and they will fade away. And this morning, I want to call us. I want to call my own heart. I want to call each of you. Let's ask the Lord to do this in our congregation. Let's repent. Let's turn our eyes away from these things that so often cause so much 
conflict and turmoil and angst in our hearts. We are so apt to despair when we see the things around us falling away. Let's live instead for this inheritance. This inheritance that will never pass away. It will never fade. It will never perish. It will always be pure and good and right. It will satisfy our souls. I'm calling you to no longer linger like Lot did with the things of this world and instead hope for that which is worthy to be hoped in. And that is Christ, His kingdom, His inheritance, so that our hearts may indeed be satisfied and our souls will find peace. Come, Christ says to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you looking for rest for your souls? For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Repent of your attempts to live for the things of this world and the hopes that you personally have and trust in Christ. Finally, point number three, the third promise to expect from as a born-again exile is a prepared salvation. A prepared salvation. Your heart may be convinced this morning that there is indeed a sure inheritance promised by our God. For all of those who are in Christ, you may be sitting here this morning saying, yes, I know that it's true. And I know that God's word says it's true and it's reserved for in heaven. That is really not the real concern for you this morning. Instead, your real interest, your question this morning isn't if the inheritance will be preserved. Listen, because that's promised by God. The real question you have in your heart this morning is if you will be preserved. You know there's a heaven. You know there's an inheritance. But will you make it? Will I make it? You've asked yourself that question because we know that we're in a war of faith. This isn't just a trifle. This isn't just a skirmish. This is skirmish. This is a this is a an all-out war. And it's intense. There's been many times when you've wondered whether you're going to fall off the cliff. And abandoned the faith altogether. Your heart's been so frail, so beat up. Another casualty in the spiritual war. You've seen people that you've grown up with that have trusted in Christ, that have fallen away. Satan, the world, and the flesh are incredible foes. And you're asking the question, will I be preserved for this inheritance that's awaiting for all of those who are in Christ? This is a real concern here for Peter. You know that one that fell himself, denied Christ three times? So in verse 5, he speaks to those who are concerned that they will be preserved. And he says in verse 5, Who by God's power, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Not, you notice here it says who here. It's speaking of those who are born again. It's not speaking of the inheritance. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And notice what it's saying here. Is it our strength that keeps us or guards us from every affront by the enemy? Not only inside, but also outside of us? No. It says here instead, it is God's power that guards us. Do you see that there? It is by God's power being guarding. We're being guarded. But, but notice This does not, it's interesting for us to understand this, this does not mean that we just sit back and say, Lord, make sure you keep sin and temptation away from me because every time it comes, I'm going to go. That's not what it's saying. It's not just that we let go and let God. No, it says here that God is guarding us. It is His strength that does it. What is our responsibility? It says here, who by God's power are being guarded, how? Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. This is the point. Keep trusting God's power to sustain you. That's what we're called to do. Don't keep trusting your power, your intellect, your ability. You will never keep you. Keep trusting by faith God's power to keep you. And when you fall and stumble and get on your face and you stand up and you say, Lord, I'm standing now by your strength and by your power, you will guard me. It is God's power that we trust in, not our own. The ravages of Satan in the world and the flesh are too much for any of us. 
We will never be preserved if we're simply trusting in ourselves or in any ingenuity of our own. We're trusting in God's power to guard us. Now, in our confession, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 17, there's a chapter on perseverance. Here is one of my favorite chapters. Listen to the ravages of all the things that come against our faith. And I want to read it to you. Chapter 17, paragraph 3 of our confession says this, And though they may, speaking of the saints, and though they may through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, these saints, and the neglect of means of their preservation, they may fall into grievous sins. That's talking about saints. They may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. That's horrendous, isn't it? But almost everyone in here knows exactly what I'm talking about right here. Listen to the last part of this paragraph. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved. Listen to what it says. Through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. How will they be preserved? Through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Let me read to you another chapter in our confession. This chapter is on faith. On faith. This is a chapter entitled Saving Faith, chapter 4, paragraph 3. It says this, This faith, speaking of the faith of those who are believers, although it be in different stages and may be weak or strong, our faith can be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of a different of it different in kind or nature of it as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers basically is saying no matter how strong or weak your faith is as a believer it's different in kind than that faith that unbelievers say they have right and then it goes on and it says therefore though it may be many times assailed our faith is assailed or attacked and weakened listen Yet it gets the victory. Growing up in many to attain the full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the perfecter of your faith and mine. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep trusting in the power of God to guard you. Keep clinging to that, even in your failures. Finally, let me close. Notice what it says. Here at the very end of verse 5, it says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, listen to this, ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice the certainty that Peter wants his, his hearers to understand. And he wants us to hear this morning. This salvation is ready. It's not a, a possible salvation. It's a ready salvation, a prepared salvation. It's awaiting us. On that day when He will reveal it to us in the last day, it is a certain thing that will happen and God will bring it about. It will be revealed. And we will stand before Him, those who possess this inheritance that He has promised us. Brothers and sisters, let's live in this living hope. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath. We will cross the great horizon, clouds behind and life secure. And the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Let me read as we close my favorite psalm. Psalm 16. Preserve us, O God, for in you we must take refuge. We say to you, O Lord, you are our Lord, and we have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they and they alone are the excellent ones in whom is all of your delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood you will not pour out or take their names on your lips. The Lord, the Lord, he is our chosen portion and our cup. 
He holds our lot. Listen, verse 6. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful, a beautiful inheritance. You make known to us the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, and at your right hand alone, are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray together.